0: Wish to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. Glad to have our visitors with us here. I invite you to worship with us. This morning I'm excited to share with you what I have, what God has laid on my heart, because it means so much to me. And I'm sure as children of God, it's going to mean so much to you as well. The title of the sermon is Loving Shepherd of Sheep Gone Astray. I'm thinking of our Easter season here. Before I start into the message, I'd like to share a little bit. You know, there, There's a lot I don't understand about God, about even the salvation experience, about why He used this plan that He's outlined in the Bible. Why not another plan? This morning I was reading an article in the Smithsonian about people who observe the sun. They have these big, great big telescopes, you know, that they're viewing the sun and trying to figure out how it works with the patterns of the earth or into the patterns of the earth and affects the patterns of the earth and so forth. And they talked about how, you you know, it's, it's gases and how it has a north pole and south pole and it'll swivel around, sometimes the south pole will be on top, sometimes the north pole, and how that... The, it doesn't necessarily move altogether it actually because it's gases it, it kind of it, it, it grinds away and, and the center will move more quickly than the top and the bottom in its rotation And, and it, it causes these explosions too they call I think it's called cornea explosions uh, will come will come out as it's doing its grinding and, and moving around these gases and they say there's enough gases released in one of these explosions. They calculate to actually take all the water out of the Mississippi and propel it to jet, jet speed in three to five minutes. Enough power there. Well, these scientists were asked, well, why does this? how does this work? And, you know, there's two of them that have been studying this for 18 years or more. These are Smithsonian scientists or endorse scientists so they, they know their stuff. Well, they were asked, you know, why, well, how does this, why does it work like it works? And they said, we don't know. Well, if they can say, we don't know about that, then surely I can say, I don't completely understand this. And there's things that, you know, the, to, the, to the scoffer who would say, why does, self, you know, why did God choose this kind of, this bloody way? To salvation, I would say, shall the created say to the creator, why hast thou made me thus? I mean, we, uh, when I look in the grand scheme of things, I'm happy to just take the word for what it is and say, yeah, I'm the created, and I am happy to accept and to take part of the plan that God has laid out, and not to question it, to take it at, at its face value from Scripture God's given us a loving shepherd of sheep gone astray I I start out with verse in Matthew 6 9 the first verse in the Lord's Prayer and you're welcome to open your Bible to this after this manner Matthew verse uh, Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 after this manner therefore pray our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name The focus of the message this morning is on this one part here, the address. Our Father. Our Father. We can leave which art in heaven for another time. But our Father. It implies a very special and close relationship. To this time, the Hebrew would have understood and known God as the hallowed Father, hallowed name, Yehovah. Um, they didn't even want to use the name of God directly. Um, His name was hallowed, it was holy. The God of power, righteousness, and justice. The God that brought uh, judgment on Pharaoh for his abuse of the children of Israel by destroying Pharaoh's crops and livestock, by afflicting him and his people, this is Pharaoh, and his people with diseases, by killing the firstborn sons of all their families, slave or free, and finally, by destroying Pharaoh and his mighty army in the mighty wa- in the uh, the waters of the Red Sea, this very formidable king and his whole army being destroyed by by God's show of power, His righteous display of power, and then you have the God that the the, the Israelites understood uh, speaking their memory of them speaking to their fathers at Mount Sinai bringing the law to them remember what the Israelites response was to to that they told Moses in Exodus 2019 when God was displaying his power and was giving the commandments you know God told Moses uh, when Moses was up on the mountain talking with him God told Moses make sure that the children of Israel don't come near the mountain and, Mo- and Moses said well God don't worry about it there They're staying away from it. They're afraid, is basically what Moses told God. Uh, And in fact, the the children of Israel told Moses this. He says, you speak to to us and we will hear. But let not God speak to us lest we die. They were afraid. So this is the God that the Hebrews knew to this time. Throughout Israel's history, she felt and knew the judgment of God. Not because God wasn't a deliverer, he was, or because God hated her, he didn't. (laughs) Or because God's heart didn't long for her well-being. He did long for her well-being. God did deliver her. First from Egypt and many many times after that. From peril, sword, and famine, God delivered Israel. He loved her. You look in Isaiah and the the love of God portrayed in Isaiah for his people. He expressed a longing for a relationship with his people. An intimate relationship with them for his chosen people. He longed for her well-being to be able to fulfill the good parts of the covenants he made with her. But she was a sheep gone astray. Isaiah says this. It says like uh, a rebellious sheep, sheep gone astray, everyone has turned to his own way. Uh, That's how how he described Israel. And so God had in his righteousness, he had to punish her. He had to do what he could to restore her. So here we are. And, and, and Jesus tells his disciples, this is the way you address, you start out your prayer, you say, Our Father. And, and this gives the connotation of Abba Father, of a, of a close relationship. Jesus, God made flesh, is telling his disciples, This is the way I want you to relate to God, ultimately to me. Our Father, this means I'm your son. We're your son, your child, your offspring, that I, we have a special blood relationship with you. Now let's keep that thought in mind, that special blood relationship with you. In Romans 8.15, it says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Father. Again, we have the spirit of sonship, and by him we call Abba Father. This is a a title that the slave couldn't call his master. He couldn't say Abba Master. Possibly, if if he had the all run through his ear, like it said in the Old Testament there. But for the most part, uh, Abba meant there was a blood relationship. There was a very close, intimate relationship. Child to father. My father. Jesus addressed his father this way in his hour of deepest need. Mark 14, 32 through 36. Uh, We had that in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Uh, In verse 35, I'll just read that. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it is possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, this is Jesus speaking. He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Uh, From Adam Clark's commentary, Abba, Father, this Syriac word which intimates filial affection and respect and parental tenderness seems to have been used by our blessed Lord merely considered as man. At that point, to show his complete submission to his father's will and the tender affection which he was conscious his father had for him. Abba, Father. I looked at this and I thought, you know, really, what father could ask his only son to go through the experience that's described here in Mark 14? Ponder that a bit could you as a father ask your son to go through the gethsemane experience could you condone that for someone else for another father to have his son go through that or for your child or your son to put his your grandson through that that gethsemane experience the distress the sorrow the overwhelming darkness that Jesus was faced with there, possibly, um, you know, possibly what would be considered the last real fight with the devil or with evil, the power, all the powers of evil. The cup, it says, the cup given to him. Take this cup from me yet. Not what I will, but what you will. This cup, this chalice what Abba, father, could possibly put his only son through such a bitter experience. We as fathers, we want our sons to succeed. We want them to be strong and resilient, resourceful. We want them to work for the welfare of others, to be compassionate, kind. We know that these attributes take pain, no pain, no gain. They take endurance. Uh, They take learning. But, but, but this cup, this, this Gethsemane experience, it's, it's so much beyond what we think of putting our sons through our children through to be what we would have them to be. So much sorrow to drink, so much sacrifice. Why? How could the Father do this? In Mark 14... You see this, what I'd say, an extraordinary picture, this cup. Imagine the worst medicine mixture you can think of. Castor oil or, you know, something else. It's not like a sweet candy medicine of today. This was a, 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 a very bitter, bitter cup. Very, uh, not, not something that was made pleasant in any way for, for Jesus to take. The father was asking the son to drink this. What was in the cup? In the cup was the cure. The cure for Adam's race. The cure for humanity was in that cup. How could the father ask the son to drink such a bitter cup? The son wasn't sick. He wasn't unhealthy or he wasn't in need of discipline. The cup's contents weren't for the son. They weren't to make him well. The cup, again I say, it contained the cure for fallen humanity. Israelite or Arab, black or white, rich or poor, bond or free, all had need of the cure that came from Jesus drinking that cup, the Son taking that cup. All we like sheep have gone astray. And there Isaiah, I believe, was speaking primarily to Israel But it was a much broader sense. It's it's quoted in the New Testament, this verse. Uh, It became a much broader uh, verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every man has turned from his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, who? On Christ, the iniquity of us all. That is every one of us, all gone astray, all hopelessly lost, out of the fold, bound to be torn to be eaten by the wild, evil beast. All that God had intended for us to be, being entered into the demonic shredder and turned into nondescript mulch. And I bring this as a wood picture. I was, we were up uh, at, the, at the mountain the other day and, and uh, we had rented this big 12-inch shredder to, to put branches through to get rid of a bunch of brush. And it was interesting. One of one of our employees was he he never used a shredder before and we grabbed this big piece of wood and put it up to that shredder. It was probably 15 feet long and it it just started right in that shredder and this big piece of this big branch just started in there and came out the other side and within two minutes that whole branch was gone. It was just chips over there on the other side. I had to think of that when I saw that. Isn't that how Satan would, have, would use the, the man? He would take him and all the substance he has, all that God has meant him to be, and would run him through that shredder and turn him into a nondescript mulch. Something that's only good for a cover and will rot away in a short amount of time. Satan would take substance and do that. Jesus said that about Peter. He told Peter, Satan would have you and and sift you as wheat. But he said, I've prayed for you. And after your conversion, strengthen the brother. And, And this picture that I see is that God has made man. His design for man is of substance. And the devil would like to destroy that substance. Rend it nothing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have that potential of only being a delicate morsel of meat for the destroyer of souls. And we are no more lost, gone, in oblivion. Every one of us has that potential. That's what the devil would like for us. And that's what Jesus came for, is to make that road back to the Father. Let's look at the heart of our Father, the Shepherd. What, thinking again of the Father, the Shepherd, of lost souls, uh, the Savior, in Luke 15, 1 through 10, Jesus was, said these parables to the, uh, his, the disciples there, to his listeners. It says, then he drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. So here we have this mixed group, publicans, sinners, and the Pharisees and the scribes. We have them there too, they're murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And Jesus spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if you lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after them, that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So he finds this lost sheep. He puts it on his shoulders. And the, and the, the picture there is, if you see a shepherd with a sheep on his shoulders, a lamb, it's probably going to be wrapped around his neck, two legs here, two legs here. And he's carrying that sheep, that lamb back. And so that's what Jesus said. He's got this, this sheep on his shoulders. He's rejoicing because he's found that one sheep. There were 99, but he's found one. And he's bringing it back rejoicing. The others are in the fold. And that's how much Jesus cared. That's how much the Father's, Father cares for that lost sheep. When he cometh home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. Jesus was talking to both groups here. He was talking to the one that's lost. He's answering the Pharisees and scribes' accusations here, and uh, the the one being the lost one, and and counting them as, as the ones that need no repentance, which they really did need repentance. For that's the father's heart, calling back, rejoicing over that lost sheep. Then it goes on to the next parable, the lost coin found. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she loses one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the piece which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. (coughs) So, looking at all these parables in a continuous way, here again we have the Father's heart rejoicing for this one coin that was lost. And then we look at the next parable in line. And this is of the lost son or of the prodigal son as it's commonly known he said to them, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living, and not many days after this, the young son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and sent him into his fields to feed swine. And would have fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise. I can go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. So this son, he takes his father's money He leaves, he goes his way, he besmears his father's name. You know, you can't help but think that in light of these two other parables that his father was grieving at home for his son. He was in tears, I'm sure. And he spent probably many a night praying that his son would would, uh, come to himself. And then we have the son here. He spent all this money, this fortune. And he's just wishing that he could have something to eat so hungry. I don't know how many of you have ever been really hungry, just so hungry you're willing to eat anything. Um, I've been close to there a few times, but for the most part I've been very blessed with, uh, with having food available somewhere or other. But this son here, he was so hungry, he was willing to do anything. He was eating the husk that the swine did eat. No man gave to him. And he comes to himself, he says, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and despair? I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will send him. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of the hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Spring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fat calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come and the father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years I do serve thee, Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry, and be glad, for thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost." and is found such a compelling story of the father's love not only for the younger son but also for the elder one he was wanting to reconcile his sons here but he also points out what he's really after he said he was lost and is found and i believe the father in his heart knew that the elder son was not found yet he really his heart had not really found the Father yet. And then we see the, this is thinking of the Father's heart here. Then going on and thinking of the, of the way God worked in Israel's life to bring them, to help them understand the atonement concept, the concept of redemption. He did this by, by the, the, the illustration real-life illustration of, of the lamb, the blood of the lamb needing to be used on the doorposts. The need for sacrifice to save. God established this precept in Exodus, in, in Exodus 12, 1 through 14. Uh, if we go there, maybe I'll read a few verses from there, Exodus 12, 1 through 14. This is, to, this setting here is after the plagues, after God had plagued the, the Egyptians for not releasing the the Israelites. And finally, we're down to the last one. And God tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh this yet. And I don't know if Moses talked to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had told him, next time you see my face, you'll die. It says when Moses had told Pharaoh this, and I'll say what that was about. When Moses had told Pharaoh this, he left Pharaoh's presence hot with indignation or hot with wrath. So whether they saw each other or not, I don't know. But Moses didn't die. But um, here we have here, God had told, or Moses had told Pharaoh through God, or by God, that if they didn't let the, that if he didn't let the children of Israel go, every male in his country would die from the firstborn, of uh, every firstborn male, from the firstborn of the citizens to the firstborn of the slaves to the firstborn even of their livestock. And so he comes back to the Israelites and he tells them this. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. He's introducing a concept here or a practice. Overall, it's a a foreshadowing of, of Christ's coming. It shall be of the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household is too little for a lamb, let him, him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. So every household should have a lamb, and if, there were, if a lamb were too much for one, they should split one between two households. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. So a, a perfect lamb of their flock, a male. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take the blood of the blood of this lamb, and they shall strike it, on the two sides of the post. So it would be like here and and like over there. And it says, on the upper doorpost of the houses and above it, I imagine the whole framework of the door. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, unleavened bread and unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire. He goes on to tell them how to do this. And then in verse 13, it says, And the blood shall be for you of a token upon the houses where you are. When I see the blood, this is the beautiful part of it. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. This is how God had worked in Israel's life to show them his plan of redemption for them. Redemption from Egypt, first of all, and then a much larger sense, redemption from sin, from the bondage or the curse of sin, which is death. So going back to the question again, how could the father ask the son to drink such a bitter cup? How could an Abba father, my father, ask the son to drink such a bitter cup? The cup... Again, contain the cure for fallen humanity. Throwing into this, into the broader picture here, before we go to answer that question, St. Augustine said this about God. In his searching for God and finding Him, he said this about God. He said, I see God as a sea. So he sees God as a sea of the universe and in which all the creatures have their being. So if you think of it this way, God as an ocean, and every fish, every living organism in this ocean is surrounded by the water of this sea. That's how he sees God, enveloping every living creature. And therefore, as Paul preached to his audience at Mars Hill, God is not far from any one of us. This was... um, I thought a, a concept that has grown on me. I, I I don't know about you. Maybe it took me a long time to realize this, but it seemed to me, you know, how good could God really multitask that much? That He can be involved in personally in, in my life, and Greg's life, and Delvin's life, and and in Fred's life, and you know, everyone's life at one time, and in and people's lives in Romania and Belize and Guatemala and, and in China. How can you know? God must be good at multitasking. Well, that's not the case. God is a spirit, and those of, those that worship Him worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's a, it's a different sort of relationship. It, I think this much more aptly describes it. We're surrounded by God, as the sea surrounds the fish. But it's even the relationship's even closer than that. Uh, Romans teaches of, that the child's relationship with the Christians relationship the child or the Christ child's relationship with the father is is very close uh, Romans 8:16 and 17 the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit so the spirit God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God it's, it's a very close relationship it's not an abstract coming back here again to to the uh, the son again, how could the father ask him to drink such a bitter cup? Not because God was higher aloof, not because his name was hallowed. It is. We see God as a person or as a being who's very interested in, in the lives of his his creation of his people. Him delivering the Hebrews from the evil clutches of Pharaoh. Introducing this concept of the sacrificial lamb. The blood being applied to the doorpost. Looking for the lost sheep. Looking, searching for that one lost sheep. Rejoicing over its salvation. Rejoicing over the one lost coin. Does this portray God as high and aloof? It doesn't to me. It shows to me a God that's very interested in in his people, and myself and you. The giving of himself for the lost son, the grieving for his son gone astray. He's he's on the lookout for the return of his son. The reproach suffered. The lost son besmeared the father's good name. He suffered that. He didn't let it make him bitter toward his son. He was still there. The open arms reception, the restoration. When the son came back, He brought the son back. He redeemed him from the life of the muck and mire of the pig pen. The giving of himself to the elder son who was faithful, but perhaps lost saying, all that I have is thine. This whole picture comes through to me as a father that's very connected with his children, with his creation, with his creatures. Isaiah 53 6 again, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's the propensity of our hearts to go astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is Adam's race, has turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. He asked the Son to drink the cup. Why? Because of the Son's close intimacy with the Father. Because the Son was actually incarnate God. God was giving himself here. God in his righteousness, his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts, had designed a road of salvation for for Adam's race from sin. And the way was, is, he was slain from the foundations of the world, it says in Revelation, and will be, the shed blood of the spotless Lamb of God. It, the way was, is, and will be the, the shed blood of the spotless Lamb of God. God not only had his fingers on the pulse of his son as he drank the cup, but he was feeling the pain, the rejection, as well, I believe. He was, He was as God involved. The price for the the good shepherd, our father to rescue the sheep gone astray, the lost sheep, the prodigal, Adam's race to rescue, redeem Adam's race was indeed high. It was a tremendous cost. And it's what a plan he designed, a plan he designed himself, he included himself, included giving of himself to bring Adam's race back from being gone astray, from going through the shredder, as if it were to speak, from being nothing to being of real, true substance and of true worth. Let's meditate on, on this, this Easter season thinking of of what God has done, his design, in bringing the lost sheep, the sheep gone astray back again. Let's be thankful to our good shepherd for what he's done for us. God bless you.